0: This is footy time with Johnny Raff. How are we all? Round seven is done. We've got a few new contenders and we've got a few teams proving just how good they are. Um, really exciting season. It's shaping to be. This could be one of the most exciting AFL seasons yet. Yeah. I think anyone outside that eight can really make an impact at the moment. A lot of gallant performances by teams outside of the 8 as well. And they a few of these teams are going to really cause a few problems, I think, for some of the top tier teams. We'll see. We'll see. There's still plenty of football to be played and there's still a lot to play for for most of these teams. Uh, but yeah, let's get stuck into it. This week we're going to do something a little bit different to kick things off. We're going to start with a new segment. Well, new for this week called Blunders and Shockers. Ta-da! I promise if I do this segment again, we will have a much better sound effect to introduce it. But let's get things started with the Blinder of this week. And the Blinder of this week is none other than the Frio Dockers. Yep. It is the hardest road game in football, the trip down to GMHBA Stadium, and the Dockers won the day, Claiming the almighty scalp that I think a lot of people wanted to see them take before anointing them as the real deal in 2022. Well, there it is. And without several players such as Matt Tavener and Sean Darcy, still no Nat Fife, obviously, but they managed to pull this one off and show the rest of the AFL world that they're in for the long haul this year. Uh, We get to a certain point in a season where it isn't just about the early form or April Premiers or Fools goals. Yeah you actually look at these teams who are doing well and you decide for yourself based on their list, their game plan, their injury list, uh, if they can actually hold up and possibly go all the way or, or how they'll fare against some of the big teams that they're coming up against soon. But I don't see why the Dockers can't for the time being anyway. This side seems to be a side that has very few weaknesses across the board. I mean, we spoke about their watertight defense last week and how they have really made some good forward lines look silly so far this year, well, the Cats have a high-scoring forward line. Yet, uh, a forward line that includes Jeremy Cameron, Tom Hawkins, Braden Close, Grant Myers, they were held to two goals between all of them. Uh, you did have Tyson Stengel chip chipping with a few, but I don't think the Cats got Stingle in to kick their winning score for them, let's be honest. Um, they were held to 66 points, the Cats, uh, and it is now getting a lot of people to take notice of Frio. And if you just look at some of the scores in their recent games, let's have a look at the last five scores that Frio have conceded. 66, 62, 59, 54, 47. I mean, this is just elite stuff defensively. And... It we said it last week. It's rivaling the D's at the moment. But this is how you build successful teams at the moment. You build them from the back. It's the things you do without the ball that count. Every team's got skillful players. But what can you do? How do you run? How do you operate when you don't have that footy? Well, these teams are getting it. But uh looking at this game, notice that the clearances and contested footy was relatively even. But the dockers. Nailed it in the running and sprinting game. They really used their speed on the outside. And because of this, they took control and and won in the territory stakes, which a lot of teams do this against Geelong. But the thing about the Cats, well, the thing I find anyway, is that they don't need to win a lot of clearances to kick a winning score. Uh, They usually have enough cutting edge up front to get the job done. And so they don't need to... Yeah, they can just sort of break even in the clearances, and can, this is a pretty, I find anyway. So, why was this different? Why was this different to any other game? Well, I got to give a shout out to Jimmy of the Mongrel Punt, who did the write up on this game. And he made a very, very good observation in that the Cats were great when they were able to leave the front of the stoppage and surge forward by hand or foot. And Jimmy, that's a very, very good point, I think, and definitely got me thinking more about that. I think a lot of Geelong's goals come from that front of the stoppage, when a danger or a parfit is either getting their own ball and you know quickly hacking it forward, or getting a handball received forward of the stoppage, a nice you know quick breakaway, and then getting a nice delivery into the 50 to let their forwards do the work. But they were not able to do this enough on Saturday. Uh Frio were just so well positioned defensively and their running was was just on point. They were ready to pressure those types of guys into and you know, obviously the other great Cats midfielders into hurried kicks and turnovers. So this yeah ended up being a massive, massive victory for the Dockers. Because there was a bit of talk about this particular ground as well, GMHBA Stadium. Uh the Cats yeah, being a side that plays there, obviously, all the time. And Frio, a team that uses the wide-open spaces of of Opta Stadium, defends that ground quite well, very fit. Frio teams are usually pretty fit, especially back in the Ross Line days. A lot of people I heard were talking about how the ground was maybe a bit too skinny for Frio to exploit the space, and it, that it wasn't going to suit them in this in this challenge against the Cats. But they were still able to do it. And actually, as a result, it went the other way. They made the ground feel even smaller for the cats, and guys like Isaac Smith, Zach Tui, even Mitch Duncan, they just had no space to run into and use their outside game. So, bravo Dockers, round eleven at the MCG against the D's. Styles make fights, and this one's going to be a beauty. Maybe the biggest Melbourne versus Fremantle game. Ever at the MCG. Who knows? Might even crack the 25,000 barrier. (laughs) We'll wait and see on that one. My shocker for this week can be none other than the other Western Australian team, the West Coast Eagles. Where do I start with this abomination of a football game? I'll leave out the fact that I did actually tip West Coast and not only lost the lead in my footy tipping comp, but my pre round. Seven best margin of the group I'm in was blown to smithereens as I had the Eagles to win, but I also tipped the margin to be 12 points. So there's about a I don't know 120 point turnaround there. But enough of that. The Tigers did what they did, and they were very, very good. We're not going to take anything away from them. But this game is more about the Eagles. They were <laughs> pathetic that's all I can say. There is no other way to slice this and I'm not even going to try. There were times in this game that were so bad that they reminded me of some of the devastating losses that the Demons had in the early 2010s, especially under Mark Neeld. Just this look of players on the field resembling witches hats and open spaces everywhere for Richmond to kick to. Tom Lynch kicked 7 goals. Well, Good on you, Tom, but you should have had 10, at least. They let this guy have 22 scoring shots. And before you say that most of these were in the second half and everyone was probably tired and ready to go to bed, well, he had five of these in the first quarter. What's going on? Like He's probably the biggest threat up forward for the Tigers as a key post, and he's getting five scoring shots. Okay, whatever. Um. Liam Ryan is a star. I love watching the way this guy plays. His kicking is amazing, both set shot and field kicking. He had four possessions in his return. Yeah. Yeah. Channel 7 did a nice build-up video package for him before the game. You know, he's a box office player. Very little happened. I don't think that coaching has a lot to do with games like this. I think it's usually all down to the players and their attitude. There's not much you can do as a coach in games like this, but I do think it's a factor. It it is a factor. It's not the only reason, but it plays a part. And I'm going to get into some things now from the uneducated armchair view of this game. So I heard one source say that they couldn't run with the Tigers on Friday night, the Eagles. They just didn't have the legs. You know, Six day break after a trip to Adelaide, all that kind of usual jazz. Well, for a second, let's just say that that kind of jazz isn't, you know, is true. Like, let's just let's pretend it's perfectly accurate for a second. So, if that is the case, and they didn't have the legs, and they couldn't run with the tigers, and it was just yeah, the tigers were just running all night, and the eagles were just chasing their backsides from start to finish. Um, Why is Andrew Gaff the medical sub? (laughs) Yeah, Andrew Gaff. This man is a running machine. If you've watched any part of his career, you'd know that. If you looked up running machine in the dictionary, there would be a nice photograph of Andrew Gaff right in there. You have a guy here who runs hard all game, every game he plays. He runs as if the game he's currently playing is going to be his last game. And he could also provide a bit of experience out there, you know, with some of these younger guys they're running through there. And he's starting with the vest on. Uh, I don't don't get it. I don't get it. Mate, look, I'm sure someone can explain this to me. I'm sure there's a reason. I'm sure there's Eagles fans out there that will know the team a bit better than I do. But I personally don't get it. Maybe there's something else going on. I don't know. Maybe uh, he's not a favorite of Simpsons anymore. I don't know. But (laughs) I just think that... They might have wanted to try someone else in that position. But for me, that's a no-brainer. I mean, he is an elite midfield runner. And yeah, I just think you could use him. But look, the issues with West Coast, they've been brewing for a long time now. Let's not pretend that this is just an overnight thing. Or it's been about their injuries this year or their COVID uh, bad luck. This has been brewing for a couple of years now. Everyone's been saying it. When do they start to go with some of the youth that's going to take them forward? How many years does somebody like Luke Shuey have left as captain? He's not going to be there for the next premiership for this club. He's probably, at this stage, he's probably not even going to be there for the next finals appearance for this club. But, that could obviously change. But, like, when do we start seeing a bit more of the, you know, through the windshield thinking from West Coast? I'm not accusing them of being a team that goes to the well all the time. We've seen some good youngsters come up for the Eagles, you know, especially someone like Oscar Allen. Star in the making. But when are we going to see the next wave? Yeah, And it's not just the players. It's not just the personnel. A few years ago, Adam Simpson was one of my favorite coaches in the competition. I loved how the Weagles web came about. I loved how they perfected that whole kick mark game style, the uncontested stuff. It was great to watch. It was good footy. But this is nothing personal against Adam Simpson. In a few seasons, he's gone from being one of my favorite coaches to one of my least favorite coaches because he just seemed stubborn now. I mean... A guy hardly ever moves the magnets in a game. If things aren't working, he's not the kind of guy that will throw people around into different positions and see what they can do. He doesn't seem to play players in new positions. He feels He's the kind of coach that feels like everyone fits a certain role, which is fair enough. That's good. It's a great way to go about it if people are playing their role. But I think sometimes you need some flexibility in your side. You need to make those changes, especially at the moment. The game style is that they play is not totally dead, but it is being passed by a little bit with all these teams playing high-pressure defensive structure setups. And uh, I look at at players like, like Jeremy McGovern, who's been great so far this season, but on Friday, just very loose, and it was their downfall, a lot of those entries into the Richmond 50. And you just wonder if guys like, Gov and Barras are giving too much leg rope away. I oh, know Barass wasn't new, but like, I yeah, just wonder if it's a good idea in this day and age to be that loose. Uh, you, you've got to be accountable. You, you've got to be accountable to a forward line, especially like Richmond's. I look at something like uh, Jaden Short, but this this criticism is not just limited to West Coast. There's a lot of teams doing this at the moment, but Jaden Short is pretty much. They're designated kicker Richmond out of the back 50. And teams are just letting this guy just run around gathering footy like it's going out of style. And he's not the kind of player to do that with. He uses the ball very, very well. I don't see why you can't at least have a, a I don't know, a defensive half forward flanker paying attention to someone like Jaden Short, because he can really use it. He had a he had a very good game on Friday night, Jaden Short. So yeah, uh, that's where it sits with West Coast at the moment. I mean, maybe lastly, I want to look at another side of things. It's the medical side of things with West Coast as well. I mean, looking at their injury list before this round, um, let's just have a real quick look at it. But okay, so Oscar Allen Foot. Campbell Chesser Ankle, Tom Cole Ankle, Hugh Dixon-Calf, Andrew Gaff Ankle, Test, Tom Joyce Ankle, Nick Nanui Knee, Dom Sheet Ankle, Zane True, Shin, Elliot Yeo Concussion. It's, it's not too bad, but um, and it's not necessarily what I'm getting at here. What, what I'm getting at here is, it just makes me think, whenever I look at West Coast injury list, it always looks as long as your arm. It always just seems to be... A lengthy list, but not only a lengthy list, the timeframes that these players are out for seems to be quite long. I just think that, for example, when you look at a player like Dom Sheed, he's missed—he's going to miss half the year pretty much with the syndesmosis. Whereas, I look at guys like Sam Walsh. Yeah, he got it in pre-season. Two-month program rehab. He's back. Alir Aaliyah, Aaliyah got it, I think around round two maybe. Oh, could have been round one. Uh, he's about two or three weeks away. Look, I'm not going to pretend that these are all the same injury, but this isn't an isolated incident for West Coast. This is something that happens often. They get these injuries, and they seem to be spending lengthy periods out on the sidelines. I mean, I don't know what it is, but we see it quite a lot. Remember the recurring hammy injuries for Luke Shuey last season. This team needs to be doing everything right when it comes to the fitness staff and the management of soft tissue injuries, but the management of, of the other injuries too. It just I'm not questioning it. If these are just bad situations or bad luck, then it's bad luck. But when this happens, I think you need to look at it. If there's going to be some kind of review, review of this club in the off-season, whatever, then you got to look into that stuff. So, yeah, that was long-winded, but I think as good as Richmond were in this game, this was more about where West Coast is sitting right now. Bottom line. The Green Machine. Toby Green was back for the Giants against the Crows. And he was probably best on ground. There's very few players in this league that instantly make their team a whole lot better. Like Toby Green does for the Giants. He is just that kind of player. Uh, he had 17 disposals and four goals. I don't think anyone questions the value that Toby Green offers that team. They were coming for the Giants during the week. Leon Cameron is his time up 10 years, no flag. You know, the dreaded duration for a coach without a flag is approximately that time period. And is it time for a change? Well, it's definitely not time for change this week, because they were fantastic. This was the GWS that we are so uh, fond of in their prime, when they did play in a grand final and several preliminary finals. It was known as the Orange Tsunami, and well, you know, look, there were some signs that this looked a little bit like a throwback to that. They definitely won clearances, they completely bathed Adelaide in the contested possession stakes. Uh, yeah, it was a very good performance. And, and this, when the Giants are playing this kind of football, I'm convinced that they can beat any team in this competition. No problem. No problem. All hands on deck. Everyone playing this kind of football. Oh, it's fantastic. Also good to see Jesse Hogan out there chipping in again. Such a valuable player to this team, even though he... Well, A, probably doesn't know it yet, and B, isn't able to string several games together for the Giants at the moment. He is an extremely difficult matchup. We all know that. And yeah, he can bring so much to the table. But before you start dropping the orange streamers from the sky, or, or send me a crate of Blacktown's finest champagne... If there is such a thing, I do have one question about the Giants, and it's probably not the best timing because they've just had a very, very good win, but I do have a thought about the Giants' midfield. We all know that the Giants, they like to pride themselves on the contested footy. They've always built their game on the contested ball, even when they were playing in those finals and and grand final. The thing you probably thought about first was the contested ball game with the Giants. And playing a territory game in the forward half, obviously. But when the Giants are all hands on deck, there's just a few samey-same players. And look, I'm not saying anything, but uh, when you look at, you know, Coniglio, Ward, Hopper, they're not going to go anywhere, I don't think. You look at Green, who's an absolute gun for the future. uh, I I just wonder where... Where Tim Taranto's future lies? I know, I know, I know. Just, to, just chill out for a second. But um, he's 24. I think Green's gone past him, to be honest. I think that there's other guys that might get a better run soon because to add more balance, guys like Lockie Ash, you could add some bounce and dash, and Perryman who could kicks a goal every now and then on the wing. I think that would be nice to see those guys move in there. I just wonder if Taranto, who is out of contract in of the year, I just wonder where he does fit in all of this Um you know, Sometimes you can just have too many of the one player, and the Giants have a lot of these one-paced midfielders who are great at winning contested footy. So I'm not sure, but we'll see what happens with that. The hardest kick in the game right now, and the most valuable kick if you're pulling it off, for me, is the kick back in board to the middle. So you're usually coming off half-back, you're going down the line, you might even fake or duke outside, and you bring a kick back in through the middle and nail the target. I think that that is currently the most valuable kick in the game right now, especially with the way a lot of teams are defending the ground. Generally, the hardest kick is probably the kick inside the 50 when you're trying to find your forwards and lowering the eyes, but that's always going to be a tough kick, obviously. But I reckon this one is the toughest one at the moment because it's risky, but if you pull it off, you can really open up a play or space through the corridor, and then you—if you, you can—if you have a designated kicker, or they don't even have to be a designated kicker, but if there's someone who has the the you know gohonas to bite off this kind of kick and really just nail it to their target, it, you just open up all kinds of possibilities. Uh, it immediately gives you the chance while in transition. And the opposition are rushing back, trying to set up their zone, trying to set up their shape. It really gives you the chance against that run of play to either go keep going up the middle and go to your tall timber, or it gives you some one-on-one options in the pocket to kick to. If you can hit that guy running through the middle, he will then have that kick to make, and it's a it's a good position to be in for that guy because <laughs> uh, yeah, they can look like the hero with the kick inside fifty that ends up being a goal assist. Um. This is more important to me right now than the, the switching kick across the ground, although we all like a good switch too. But I reckon if you pull this kick off right now, you really catch the opposition on the hop, you get it in quick to your forward line, they're off, caught off guard, and, yeah, you create scoring opportunities. It has been a very drab year for Bombers fans so far, but they do have something to hang their hat on. And that's Nick Martin. This guy came into the league with an absolute bang. Uh, He was on the supplemental list. He was probably working at Total Tools weeks before his debut. Uh, I'm just joking. But he came in and had that massive first game, 27 disposals, 5 goals. But he isn't disappointed. He has had some really good games and really good numbers. This guy is 190 centimetres and has very good vision, can play sort of as a tall midfielder or a forward, and yeah, he speaks the language of forward and midfield. So a perfect, I guess, link man between those two. Maybe in the Isaac mould, he kicks very well with both feet. I mean, how many players in the league right now kick well on either side? There are so many players these days that are just kicking with the outside of their foot, bananaing it round for what could be pretty simple drop punts with the other side of the body, but Martin can do either very well. I don't even know what his natural foot is. Um, yeah, so as I said, can really sort of play as a connector forward, but yeah, he's got some versatility and... And running output, I think this kind of player, I would, if I'm looking at Essendon and I'm an Essendon fan, this might not be popular, but I'm more excited about seeing a player like Nick Martin right now than Dylan Scheel. That's going to sound awful to a lot of diehard Essendon fans, but I see Shield play at the moment and I just see butchering the footy week after week. I see running output that just isn't quite there at the moment, although you know, that can change obviously, but... I see someone like this and I think this is a guy that can actually surprise oppositions at the moment with a, f- a midfield like essence. Uh, I'd be excited. I'd be excited about this guy and, you know, in crisis can come opportunity and this guy was pretty much plucked out of thin air. I mean, the, <laughs> apparently this guy was available to 17 other clubs. What happened? <laughs> um, you look at these situations, and let's not forget, Anthony McDonald, Tip and Woody came out of the replacement players scenario the year that uh, the uh, 34 were rubbed out. Are you telling me he's not an elite forward of the competition? <laughs> Jeez, and look, it's just another example of other avenues to get to the AFL. You don't need high drive picks all the time. You don't need big free agents. If your scouts are good enough, they'll find the talent. talent's out there. Talents out there in not the obvious places as well, which is what's so great about uh, the national game and the setups at grassroots level. So, you know, I'd like to see more players like this. I think this is a good story. And I really hope it gives the Rising Star this year a fair old crack because, yeah, I reckon um, this kid out of Super Echo is something for the future. And, look, apologies to Dylan Chill. You are not the only one. I'm not singling you out. You're just the first name that came to my mind. One of the most annoying things that happened when Travis Cloak was playing the game was the moment that he would start getting inaccurate with his set shots for goal. The first thing that you'd see in the papers or on the free shows was it's time for Travis to call on the experts. He needs to consult BT, Matthew Lloyd, uh, whoever the goal-kicking coaches were at the time it was always the same story. It was Travis needs to get his goal-kicking stance down pat and he needs to, you know, do all sorts of weird witchcraft and voodoo and practice with crowd noise in his ears. And it was just, I don't know, maybe this made for good uh, reading or TV watching for a lot of people, but I just found that this was just such trite after a while. It was just, let's just go back to the well and run the old bubblegum story that everyone seems to lap up and this was it for me anyway. Well, the modern day version of this to me is Max King. Now, Max had an inaccurate night on Saturday night against the Power up in Cairns. Uh, I will get into some of his uh, habits with his set shot routine in a moment, but I feel like the moment that Max has a bad day in front of goal, the first person they're asking for advice, the first person they're asking for an opinion is Matthew Lloyd. And it's always, Matthew, are you going to get involved? Are you going to start coaching Max King? Are you going to take him through his routine and fix up all his problems? And oh, if I was Matthew Lloyd, I'd be so frustrated with this. Every time he's going to answer it the same way. Well, look, I think they're going to do it internally. They're going to handle this issue internally. Uh, I think uh, Brett Ratton and Jared Ruffhead, the Fords coach, they're going to, you know, sort it out and Make sure he gets a good routine happening. He's had to say this about three times in the last two years. And, you know, Max went on a really good tear as well for a bit there with his accuracy. But he's had a couple of off weeks and all of a sudden we're talking to Lotto again and seeing what he thinks can be done. And look, if Matthew Lloyd is the answer for Max King's uh, consistency in front of goal, then sure, bring him in. Absolutely. But it's just. Frustrating to have to hear this over and over again as if it's a new story that they're running. Like knock it off. It's not a new story. If you're gonna run it, just you know, don't pretend like this is something that's you know a big scoop. Um, yeah, just find it really frustrating. But on the subject of the inaccuracy and set shots, we like to talk about this goal kicking, bad kickings, bad football. We always say it week after week. But when it comes to Max King in the moment, looking at his his stance at the moment and, Usually there's, I'm saying this off the top of my head, but I feel like there's about six or seven uh, facets of a set shot routine that you have to sort of get right to be a consistent, you know, hot shot in front of goal. One of these aspects I'm very big on is the ball drop and making sure that ball drop has very little margin for error and is almost... Placed down onto the point of your foot. Now you're not going to hit it in the exact same spot every time, but you want to have as little movement or spinning or just anything that can put the ball off axis. You don't want to do that. You can't avoid it entirely, but you don't you want to minimize it. I see so many players take set shots at the moment, and they're just spinning the ball in their hands as they're starting their run up. And it got me thinking, when did this come in? When did this become a thing to do? Look, I know that players kind of, some of them can't sort of sit still or they just kind of think that maybe this will relax them, you know, this will just get me a nice uh, zen frame of mind if I'm just sort of sifting the ball through my hands. But so many players do this. And I just, I'm not sure how when you're in your approach for the set shot and you're I'm using the drop punt as an example because obviously I'm a traditionalist, but I just don't understand when if you're spinning the ball in your hands moments before you're about to drop that ball onto your foot, how do you know that you're getting that ball in the exact position to be dropped onto your foot? And there's probably an easy answer to that. They probably don't think about that. <laughs> they probably don't. But, um, you know, Matthew Lloyd did mention on the Sunday Footy Show this morning that he would do that. But he wouldn't do it in his run-up, which is obviously a part of the set-shot routine. But he would spin it around in his hands a little bit to get a feel for it because, you know, you just it's sort of not getting your eye in, but I guess getting your hands in and getting your, a feel for the ball and where you may end up kicking and making that point of contact. But he would do that before he started the run-up. He would just sort of sift the ball around a bit in his hands and then – find his grip, okay, this is the grip I'm holding, and then he would sort of hold it over the kicking foot and it would not move much from there in the whole set shot stance. He he said he modelled his set shot routine on Tony Lockett, which is a very good example to do that on. Uh, But as you would start your stride, there's going to be some natural movement with the ball over your foot, but it's very minimal. And this is something that they, going back to cloak, this is something they always tried to do with Cloak, whoever was coaching him at the time. And his best set shots were when he was able to keep that ball still and not flying around as much, not flapping around, just keeping it as still as as possible. And then just naturally guiding the ball down onto your foot and kicking a goal. But we've got players that do this a lot. And, you know, Christian Petrarca is another, I guess. But um, the one thing I will mention about both of those players that I've just mentioned, Max King and Christian Petrarca, I don't know if I'd call these guys naturally bad set shots for goal. I really think that it's just between the years. I think when these two players have got a bit of confidence up in their set shot ability, they just drill them each time. Now, you could say that about any player in the comp. You could say that the, the main problem with set shooting for goal right now is all mental. And you could say that once we fix that, we're going to have better set shooting for goal league-wide. I think it's a little bit more than that. I think technique's a big part of it and getting that set shot routine down pat. That's what it is as well. It's mental, but it's about getting a routine and making it second nature. There's a lot of players that don't have that. A lot of players are just running in and, you know, dropping the ball. If they do, they usually throw it up half the time and it's got all sorts of room for, uh, you know, error. Um, But yeah, I, I think when you see someone like Petrarca confident. He drops the ball perfectly onto his foot. When he's not, if he's like got a slight jitter or something, that's when he's spinning the ball in his hands. That's when he's dropping the ball high. I think that these are fixable. They're not fixable in season, maybe. I mean, it well, could be, but I think they're definitely fixable through an off season. And, but it takes a lot of practice. It takes a lot of practice to get that kind of routine down pat. Uh, But yeah, look, I just wanted to talk about that because I thought it's just the most frustrating thing when the moment a player is inaccurate, these guys who were great spearheads themselves and they were goal-kicking coaches, it's just the first question they get asked and it's got to be annoying. We've actually got a few fan questions this week, which is good to see. So yeah, let's get stuck into them. This first one is from rachel hey johnny i enjoy your show i just wanted to ask you a question about the umpires a lot of people complain about the umpiring and what they're doing wrong but is there anything that you think that they have done quite well so far this season i'm really glad you asked this question rachel not enough people ask this kind of question ever or look at the positive side of things in life so i think this is a good one um the first thing that comes to mind for me is I've been happy with the way that the umpires are paying the holding the ball. I think that's been really, really refreshing. Most games I've seen, especially in the last few weeks, if a player has had the ball and they've had prior opportunity and they've either duked or faked a handball or they've tried to drive a tackle and they don't dispose of it instantly, correctly, then it's paid holding the ball. There has been no question about it, and I've actually really enjoyed it. I think erring on the side of ball has been really good. And it's kept the game flowing, which is what we want to see. So, yeah, I've been very impressed with that. I hope that they keep it up for the season and don't slip into any old habits. But, uh, yeah, if you don't see a correct disposal, I think you just got to pay it ball. No benefit of the doubt. If you clearly see the ball knocked out of their hands, then fine. But if there's a prior opportunity and they don't get rid of it uh, correctly, then... That is, uh, that's holding the ball. Uh, we go to the next one. <laughs> and this one... Is, oh, boy. This one is from Ben. And uh, with the subject title... <laughs> uh, yeah, this is definitely one of the most fascinating questions we've had so far in 40 time. Um, okay, so the subject title is... Marvel Marshmallows. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, we'll, get to, we'll get to the email. Hey, Johnny. Do you think that teams that play their home games at Marvel Stadium are soft? I'm a traditional footy fan who likes teams that can brace the elements, get a little dirt on their fingers, and not be afraid to get physical. Wow. Okay. Well, Ben, thanks for the question. Uh, Before I answer that to the best of my ability, uh, I don't think that any team that plays in the Australian Football League is, quote, soft. I think all teams work extremely hard in pre-season during the week, pushing their bodies and minds to the absolute limit. And come game day, they're essentially going out to battle. So, I think the word soft is a very damning word to use and shouldn't be used flippantly when it comes to AFL footy. But to your question, I think Marvel Stadium teams are generally fast teams with a lot of outside speed, Um, but I certainly don't think that they're soft by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I think as far as the speed's concerned, you see this with a... The teams like the Bulldogs and Essendon and St Kilda, they often seem to have a few guys in their side with genuine league speed. And under that roof at Marvel, you really see this shine through. You think of the Brad Hills, the Andrew McGraths, the Bailey Smiths, and there's many more. Uh, But yeah, I wouldn't say they're soft. I think some teams may be tougher than others in the sense that they... I guess, clock up more contested ball gets and clearances and tackles, or or they're renowned for staying tougher over, I guess tougher for longer, over the four quarters of a footy game. But I don't see any major disparity with teams that play at Marvel versus all the other open-air teams that play at, you know, the G, Optus, Gabba, SCG, Adelaide, or whatever. If you're talking about the weather and teams being able to brave the elements. look I don't have the exact stats on how those teams from Marvel fare in I don't know sub 10 degrees weather or games where it's raining sideways but I reckon I'd be disputing that too to be honest. I think um, I mean look at the look at the Western Bulldogs last year. I mean in round 19 I think it was against the Ds. it was billed as one of the games of the season. Uh, we were still in lockdown, so there were no fans. But um, the Dogs got it done that night in the wet with their amazing ground ball game. Uh, it was a big win for them. Uh, then again in the finals, they did it against and down in Tassie. It was, it was pouring down. And again, their ground ball pressure and being able to work contest to contest, they were fantastic. So, no, I don't think that those teams are at a massive disadvantage. I actually think that there's, there'd be more of an advantage in the teams that play a certain ground a certain way or, and play a certain ground well, like a Melbourne or a Richmond defending the open spaces at the G or West Coast in their heyday with their kick-mark style uh, and, and the web. But, um, yeah, I, I would say that that is more of an advantage for those teams than playing in the elements is a disadvantage for teams that come from Marvel. Uh so yeah, but um thanks a lot, Ben. I really appreciate the question. Um yeah, it gets you thinking. And uh look, if any of you out there have any questions, there's no question too curly. Just uh send them into footytime22 at gmail.com Well that's about all we've got time for this week. It's been another good round of footy and Tomorrow, we are actually going to release a special episode, and it's going to be the well our version of the All-Australian team after round seven. You might remember we did one last year. Uh, we're going to have another crack at it again, and again, we'd like to hear what you think. But tune in for that one. In the meantime, enjoy your week, and we will see you very shortly. Bye for now.